Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori, a senior editor here at Wired, and you are listening to Gadget Lab. I'm here with my co-host, Wired senior writer, Ariel Pardes. Hey! And we are joined today by Wired transportation editor, Alex Davies. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? <laughs> Doing great. Uh, Lauren Good is out this week attending the TED Women Conference, but she'll be back on our next regularly scheduled show. Today, we're talking about how we travel. Later in the show, we will be sharing some travel tips just in time for the holidays. But first, we need to talk about Tesla's plan to put lasers on its cars. It sounds like a feature that's going to be in the Cybertruck. Is that right? Cybertruck! <laughs> oh, man, I am so excited to talk about the Cybertruck. I've been talking to people about this seemingly nonstop for days now day has it only been days since yeah it was it was the week before thanksgiving oh so it's been God. it's two weeks feels like a life this is actually we're in a new dating era where instead of like anno domini it's just after cyber truck. yes yes there is a clear <laughs> delineation of before and after the cyber truck we're gonna get into that in a little bit but uh before we start talking about space metal and uh other weird stuff like that uh we have to talk about uh wiping our windshields with lasers because that is elon musk's Newest crazy idea, old windshield wipers, boring, new lasers for cleaning gunk off your car. Cool. Yeah. So this is a patent that um, Tesla filed for in May and that was published last week. It's So to preface this, patents, automakers patent weird things all the time. It doesn't mean that this is something they're actually working on or something that's necessarily feasible. It's just as possible that someone at Tesla had this idea and they wanted to make sure it's their idea in case someone else has this idea. But it is neat. <laughs> it's basically the idea is instead of using, you know, like windshield wipers and washer fluid to get gunk off your windshield, you would use lasers to shoot it off. Zip, zap, zap. <laughs> we prefer pew, pew. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. That's a concept. It's actually not that crazy an idea. Lasers are used for similar concepts these days. There's a robot that came out of Carnegie Mellon that uses a laser to take the paint off of fighter jets, basically, and it can do it one layer at a time. And it's all about calibrating the laser just right so that basically you're melting off or burning off the paint, but not damaging the metal underneath. And the idea here would be something similar that you can take off like the the bird crap or the gunk or dust or dirt or whatever, but without scratching or cutting the glass underneath it. Wait, so Alex, is the idea here that you're going to use lasers to literally wipe your windshield? Or is this more sophisticated, like wiping the glass that houses the camera that powers Tesla's autopilot? It's it's a couple of things, and the patent leaves a lot of things open to interpretation. It wouldn't be replacing the way you regularly wash your windshield oh, for man. most stuff. It would, I think for the windshield, it would focus on the area right in front of the cameras that do the work of looking for lane lines and other things in Tesla Autopilot and what may eventually someday be what Elon Musk promises, full self-driving. It could also be used for the camera lenses themselves inside the car where you don't want to use windshield wiper fluid. And it could also be for solar panels. Tesla's in the solar business. That's actually the thing that I think is the most interesting about this. Like whenever I see, you know, some crazy idea come out of a tech company like 
in a patent, right? Whether it's Tesla or Apple, we also look at Apple patents a lot. You always try to look at what the super long game is. And in this case, I think it's solar panels. I mean, Elon has always said that he wants Tesla to be a power company. They have a, a robust battery factory and a battery business, and they're selling power walls, and they're selling these giant batteries that basically sit outside your house and run power for you. You can also like get a bunch of them, put them together, and build an entire community that runs off of battery power. So um, if you're going to be doing this in remote locations, you may have solar panels that are you know, hundreds of yards away, and you want to clean them off. You can just blast them with a laser to clean them off. Or even on your own roof, because you don't want to climb up there and risk <laughs> yeah. falling off off of your Tesla solar glass roof. And and that is where it makes a lot of sense. And studies have shown that having any kind of gunk or dust or dirt on solar panels seriously reduces their efficiency. Yeah. Well, I think we should talk about the Cybertruck. Ariel, I know you have thoughts about the Cybertruck. Cybertruck! <laughs> uh I have thoughts about this. I know you have thoughts about this. I'm sure our listeners do as well. Um, but just in case uh, anyone listening has not heard about the Cybertruck, uh, maybe you've been like hiding under a rock made of space metal. This is Elon Musk's latest addition to his fleet of cars. And it's very different than the Teslas he's introduced before because it's a truck. Um, this is a truck that is designed to be super, super durable. It gets 250 miles of range and uh, it costs just $40,000, which for what it is, it seems pretty, pretty affordable. Um, 200,000 people have already signed up to pre-order it, including apparently some some police officers in Mexico, um, question mark. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is like the buzziest thing in, uh, in the auto space right now for so many reasons. Um, Alex, what was your initial reaction when Elon introduced this thing? Is this a troll? <laughs> because of the That's, design? I mean, yeah, yeah. If you look back at our Slack conversation as we were watching the 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 event uh two weeks ago yeah it's is this a troll because this thing looks completely insane i think the cybertruck maybe is the new dress is it black and blue is it yellow and gold is the new is that incredibly ugly and like a mismemory of what the future would look like in the 1980s <laughs> or is it actually really cool and a new fresh take on the pickup truck but Putting that aside for the moment, I think what's really interesting for Tesla is that it makes so much sense to get into the pickup space. Elon Musk first talked about making a pickup truck in 2013, and since then, they've been working on the Model S, the Model X SUV, the Model 3 sedan, the Model Y baby SUV, a new Roadster, the Tesla semi-truck, which is an 18-wheeler. Pickup trucks really make sense because, one, they're a huge slice of the American market. Americans buy a million of these things every year. The Ford F-150 is the best-selling car in America every single year, like best-selling passenger vehicle every year for the past few decades. They're also big profit centers for automakers. I found a Reuters report saying that GM makes about $17,000 in profit per pickup truck, which is completely nuts because in the auto industry, you're often talking around profit margins that are 3 5%, maybe in luxury you get up closer to 10 And for Tesla, as an automaker that's trying to make it and try to make actual money most quarters, which it's not really doing these days, it's a move that makes sense. Well, 
you know, one of the most um, potent criticisms that I've seen of the Cybertruck so far is that uh, Tesla designed a pickup truck for Tesla fans and they did not design a pickup truck for pickup truck fans. So the audience for this thing is not the, the F-150 buying public. It's the people who may maybe want to buy a Tesla. Oh, I don't know about that. I think there are plenty of people who are interested in something durable and manly and powerful who saw, for example, Elon's demonstration of a truck pull and were like, yeah, <laughs> Cybertruck. <laughs> right, right. In, in this uh, demonstration event, Musk showed off a video of a tug of war contest between a Cybertruck and a Ford F-150, although in the video, what he didn't mention was that it's kind of like the least powerful F-150 there is, but the Cybertruck, you know, won. It won the tug of war. Yeah, but it was uphill. What, one of the more potent criticisms I've heard is how are you supposed to crash this thing? Automakers are held to a really high standard for what happens when their cars get into a crash, right? And so cars are built with this specifically designed crumple zone so that if you crash into something, your car might get screwed, but like you're not going to die. Um, the Cybertruck really flips that design on its head. And it's made of this incredibly durable material called space metal, which SpaceX designed for its rockets to be sent into space. Um, and uh, I think there's some some interesting criticisms out there around like what happens when you get in a car accident. And it kind of surprised me because Musk rightly often points to the safety levels of his cars. Electric cars have various advantages in the way you can design things like crumple zones and the way they stay really grounded because the battery's on the floor. And the fact that he didn't mention safety at all in this presentation surprised me. And makes that a bigger question mark. Yeah, it just uh, as a person who rides a bike on city streets every day, I see that thing and it looks like a tank to me. And I know that if I'm riding down the street and I see a Cybertruck, I feel like I'm in Mad Max and I'm going to die at any second. And it's a very pointy tank. It really is a very pointy yeah. tank. The crumple zone is you, Mike. Yeah. On your bicycle, you crumple. Although it's sort of like it's shaped like a big wedge of metal cheese and i kind of feel like that if it hit me i would just sort of slip right over the windshield and just go shooting off the top of it you might land in the bed oh there's a bed so there, there, is, a there bed. is a bed it is a pickup truck okay and i think setting aside looks for for a moment i think what'll really be interesting to see is how practical is this vehicle actually because if people want to use it as a work vehicle and they're down with that kind of wild look which i'm sure some people will be it is neat that it looks so different from every other pickup, which just looks the same as every other pickup. Yeah. You know, if it can actually post good range numbers, if the torque is there, it's not crazy. Yeah. I think I think the answer to that is im. It is impractical. That's exactly how practical <laughs> it is. <laughs> I mean, I understand pickup trucks are as much about hauling or as much about pulling as they are about hauling. So if it can tow something, it can, if it can tow a house, then I'm sure it's going to be useful to some people. I just, I just don't understand why anybody would want to buy a car. That's just me. I look forward to seeing your mentions after this <laughs> podcast airs. Uh, speaking of mentions, there's one more thing happening in Elon Musk's world that we should mention, which is uh, Elon Musk's defamation trial, uh -huh. the famous pedo guy case. Um, where, where to even begin with this? So this goes back to 2018 when Musk offered his services to help rescue the group of Thai boys who are stuck in a cave. He decided to 
invent some kind of mini submarine thing. It didn't really go anywhere, but when someone asked a guy named Fernand Unsworth, who was helping with the rescue operation, what he thought of Musk's submarine plan, Unsworth said not terribly kind things. What your thoughts on Elon Musk's idea was? And stick his submarine where it hurts. Musk did not take kindly to this response from Mr. Unsworth, <laughs> and on Twitter called him pedo guy. <laughs> and Unsworth did not take kindly to that. Basically, this is a stupid fight between Elon Musk and a British expat living in Thailand. Musk called him pedo guy. Unsworth is suing him for defamation. But a lot of weird stuff has come out since the lawsuit was filed because there's been all sorts of legal discovery going through different emails. It turns out Musk hired a guy who was a pitching himself as a private investigator, but was actually a con man to find out things about Unsworth's wife. Musk says he was told through some chain of people that Vernon Unsworth had married a Thai girl when she was 13 years old. Unsworth's lawyers say Musk was actually told his wife was 19 when he married her, but in reality she was 32 when he married her. <laughs> so it's this whole bizarre chain of events, but somewhat surprisingly, no one has settled. Unsworth is suing Musk for $75,000. Which is damages, like nothing for him. Which is nothing. Elon Musk is an actual billionaire, but... It's a, I don't know if maybe Musk didn't want to settle this or Unsworth didn't want to settle this. He really just wanted to take it to Musk. No one settled the case, and that's why Elon Musk had to sit down in a courthouse this week and explain that when he says pedo guy, he doesn't mean pedophile. He means creepy old man. Yeah, the, the best part of this case, which is bizarre but really delightful to watch um, unfold, is that it's really hinging on this question of, like, what constitutes the nature of an insult on Twitter? And, like, how does Twitter work? And should we be held responsible for the flippant things we say on the platform? And what's so funny about what I've read about this so far is that, like, the jurors and the judge seem very confused about, like, the basic mechanics of how Twitter works um, and like why you would tweet something like pedo guy. Um, Musk's lawyer has invented this incredible new term, the JDART, the joking, deleted, apologized for responsive tweet, which is a wow. new <laughs> legal category. Uh, they don't you. teach that in law school. Yeah. Thank you, Elon Musk. I think uh, I think um Elon's going to lose and he's going to pay out. And the, again, the $75,000 doesn't matter to Musk. What matters here is that he looks so stupid. <laughs> and as he admitted to one of his PR people in an email that was made public during the course of this trial, ask Musk to quote Elon Musk, I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> Well, we should note that uh, the trial is still ongoing as we're recording this. So uh, by the time you're listening to the show, it may have been resolved. It may still be going. Uh, so just keep in mind, we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, and we are going to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we are going to talk about our favorite travel tips for the holidays. Welcome back. It's the holiday season, which means visiting family or friends, and that means traveling, which is not always great. 
You might get stuck in traffic or crammed into an airplane for hours. But we here at Gadget Lab are experts at traveling, and we have come up with some tips for you. Ariel, let's start with you. What is your best tip for travelers? Okay. So if you're going on a plane ride of any distance, which I would define as like more than two hours, you probably have a plan of what you want to do with that time, right? You're either going to like sleep, you're going to work, you're going to catch up on Netflix, you're going to read a book, you're going to talk to your friend, whatever. And how annoying is it when you get onto a plane and you sit in your seat and you realize that something has gone terribly, terribly wrong like you don't have an outlet to plug in your computer or you've planned to get the window seat so that you can take a nap but then like your seat has one of those like half windows where you can't like comfortably put your head against the the side of the plane because it's only like a half window and then your like plan to sleep has been ruined or worst of all you get into your seat and it has one of those horrible electrical boxes uh right where your feet are supposed to go so you can't stretch out and you're super uncomfortable has this happened to you yes yep Okay, so the way to avoid this is to use a guide like Seat Guru, which is basically a website that maps planes and tells you what you can expect to find on your particular aircraft. So it's very helpful when you're choosing a seat, if you're so lucky as to be able to choose one. You can avoid uh, the half window, the electrical box, and other annoying things. Sometimes it'll even note when like a certain part of the plane gets colder, uh, so you can like avoid the cold section of the plane. Um, but it also gives like really useful information around things like uh, does the aircraft have outlets? Does it have TV screens on the back of the seats? Um, and anything else you might need to know to make your trip more comfortable. And you don't even have to know going in what kind of plane you're going to be on. You can actually just punch in your airline and the flight number mm -hmm. and it'll tell you. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's super easy. All right, yeah. Alex, what's what's your hot tip? Okay, so I feel like People come out of airplanes with colds all the time, and everyone's like, oh, well, yeah, you're in a plane. You know, the air. It's the cold. That is not where the germs come from <laughs> in a plane. People. It's from the other people. <laughs> and it's more specifically the dirtiest thing in a plane when you get in is the armrests. It's the seat back. It's where it's like the tray table. It is where other people have actually been sitting. The air is actually circulated really well. So you are breathing the same air as like a couple people next to you, but it's not like someone 12 rows away has a cold and then everyone gets it. So my tip is bring disinfectant wipes. And the first thing you do when you sit down is just wipe, give everything a good wipe and keep yourself that much healthier. On that same note, I also vote for taking a window seat. There was a study recently that we covered, I think a few months back, showing that people who sit in the aisles get sicker because you are in more contact with other people as they walk up and down the aisle. Uh, get a window seat. It's like Sartre said, hell is other people. <laughs> it's so true. Um, okay, my tip is indoor-outdoor slippers. So this is like a category of slippers that basically are like very comfy, sort of shearling lined, or you can get like the vegan version that has synthetic shearling. Uh, they look like slippers and they feel like slippers, but they also have grippy rubber soles on the bottom so you can wear them indoors and outdoors. I started flying with these things and I absolutely love them. They make going through security much better. They keep your feet super comfortable. Uh, it's easier, I feel like, to get comfortable on a plane if your feet are comfortable. So to your point, Ariel, if you don't have an electrical box in front of you or if you're able to sort of like move your feet in a way where you're not touching anything, if you're wearing slippers, it's just easier for me to fall asleep 
it's also easier to um, sort of move around if you don't have these big old clunky shoes on. I'm also a person who has very large feet, so for me this is like a big win. Anyway, it's kind of a weird one, and I know that it really only works if you're checking bags, but I always check a bag, so I always fly with my indoor outdoor slippers what's your preferred brand i like these ones that the company keen makes k-e-e-n they make one called the hauser which is really good uh there's also one from a company called olukai that i really like called the moloa uh, all their names are hawaiian so you have to do that like the hawaiian pronunciation moloa anyway uh yeah slippers only ballers fly with slippers ariel what's your uh what's your next tip so my next tip is uh, around sleep. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows that I am a person who loves sleep and you cannot let a long airline trip uh, rob you of that precious sleep. Um, so I would like to recommend the world's best neck pillow. It's called the turtle. Um, basically the way this works is, you know, you know how like most normal neck pillows are like a sort of pillow shaped like a donut and you wrap it around your neck. And, um, the problem with these is that they're either like too puffy and then it's, it cranes your neck at a weird angle or they're like not puffy enough and then you like can't rest. Or like my personal gripe is that the pillow part that's on the back of your neck makes it really hard for your head to be flush with the seat back and like then you're pitched forward and I can't fall asleep like that. So Turtle makes this very different kind of neck pillow. It is basically like a strip of fabric that you wrap around your neck like a neck brace. Well, like you're an old fashioned person with a toothache. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it has this little like sort of uh, fabric accordion thing that you can crank up to exactly the desired height for your particular uh, cheek to shoulder ratio. And then you can put it on either side of your of your body and then it just sort of rests on your shoulder and you tilt your head and it's so, so comfortable. I have had my absolute best airplane sleeps with the turtleneck pillow. I will say, by way of a caveat, you look stupid. You look stupid <laughs> and like you've broken your neck and possibly like you've died, but it's well worth it for the sleep. And if you're asleep, who cares? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've never done this uh, with another person. Like I've only ever used the the, the turtle when I'm traveling alone because I have a much uh, higher threshold for shame, um, but it's really nice. Uh, Alex, what is your next tip? You mentioned that you like slippers because you've got to take, they're easier to take off. Yes. Don't take your shoes off at all at security. <laughs> what? And if you want to do that without getting arrested and put on the no-fly list, get TSA pre-check. No kidding. Yeah. It's $85. It's good for five years. You've got to go through a background check, so I assume not all of our listeners will be eligible <laughs> um, for, for this service. But essentially, it's the TSA saying... They set up a separate line. You don't have to go through the scanny thingy where you clap your hands over your head. You just go through a normal metal detector. You don't have to take your computer out of your bag. You don't have to take your shoes off. It makes going through security like something an actual human being does. <laughs> and it makes it that much more pleasant. It's also way faster. And the secret benefit that I have come to realize over the last five years now of having TSA pre-check is that you're in a line with people who know how to travel. You're in a line with people who know how to get through security smoothly, which is not to shame anyone who doesn't travel all that often, but it's just, it's kind of like the express line 
uh, of airport security. And the key there is if you get to the airport early, you get through TSA pre-check quickly, you have the time to drink a dirty gin martini before getting on your plane. And even if you don't have the turtleneck pillow, you will sleep. <laughs> Ooh, I would love to travel with you. I love an airport bar. Is that is that your go-to drink before before a flight? The dirty yes. gin martini? Absolutely. Uh. Flying got so much better after I turned 21. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what's your next one? Uh, okay, so when you check a bag and then you have to go to baggage retrieval to pick up your bag, the thing that everybody always does is they go and they stand right up against the belt. They put their knees on the metal so that they can reach over and grab their bag. And yeah, that's, that's where you go. Yeah, that's not where you go. That's rude, right? It's rude because you're in everybody's way and you're making it more difficult for people to get their bags off the belt. So you can, you can those people can do that. That's fine. What you should do, because it works better, is stand about... 15 or 20 feet back near where the bags come out. That way you can see your bag come out and then you can see the best place to go and walk up and grab it. So it accomplishes a few things. It prevents you from being that rude person, Alex, who's standing there <laughs> waiting to get their bag as soon as it comes off. Uh, it also makes it so that it's easier for you to get your bag off because you can find the best place to grab it and pull it. So you're not causing a lot of like commotion and ruckus right up there against the belt. And also it's just like the human thing to do, I feel like. You know, you just sort of assess the situation and act like a normal human being instead of just putting your body in everybody's way. Can you tell that like I have a bit of anxiety about the baggage retrieval system at the airports that I fly to and from? No. <laughs> Not at all. I usually like to just send a strapping young lad to collect my bags. So yes, you could do that. Then I get another dirty gin martini while I wait. <laughs> I stand kind of far down the line where it's much less populated and wait for my bag. That's a that's also a very good way to do it. But you're right. There is horrible bunching right right where the bags come off. And if you don't participate in that, it makes it easier to get your bag with less anxiety and you're not a rude person. Fair. Is this a travel tip or is this just like Mike complains about baggage retrieval? It's a travel admonition. <laughs> it's a plea. It's a plea. But trust me, it makes your life a whole lot easier. And you get your bag just as fast as everybody else. It's amazing how it works. Uh, okay. Well, anyway, we're going to take a break now so I can go cool off. And then we're going to come back and we're going to do recommendations. Hello again. It's time for recommendations. Alex, you are the guest. You go first. Mark Bittman. Mark Bittman. <laughs> How to cook everything. How to cook everything. How to yeah. cook everything. It's Solid. a big book. It's with small print and it doesn't include quite everything, but it's terrific. What I really like about this cookbook, which has been around forever and which I bought at a used bookstore for like $3, is that Bittman does a really good job of not just giving you recipes, but of explaining what each recipe is doing. He's actually telling you how to cook something and good ways to do it, good ingredients to use, good flavors to go for. And so you're not just learning by rote, you're actually learning the principles. And based on his advice, I've become somewhat obsessed in recent weeks with making stocks out of all sorts of leftovers. I hosted a Friendsgiving dinner a couple of weeks ago and my freezer is now 90% turkey stock, and it is so good. I've got shrimp stock, I've got fish stock, I've got chicken stock. Uh, I'm working my way up to vegetable stock, but you need like a lot of vegetables to do that. And what I really like about that is, and I think this is an actually a somewhat wired way of cooking, is that it cuts down on waste, it lets you experiment with different flavors, 
it keeps really well, and you can use it to make things like risotto or rice or pasta sauce 50% more delicious. And your whole house smells like soup all the time. Which is wonderful. <laughs> Especially now that it's winter, San Francisco, we're in the rainy season. Last night, I made chicken noodle soup. Tonight, I'm making shrimp soup. It's a soupy stocky. You're the soup Wonderful Mac. life. Mm. Absolutely. Ariel, what's your recommendation? I would like to recommend the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which is a website and soon to be a book from this guy, John Koenig, uh, who invents words to describe the sort of strange, mournful feelings that many people have. Um, here's one example, which I think is relevant to our show this week. It's uh, a word he calls onism. The frustration of being stuck in just one body that inhabits only one place at a time, which is like standing in front of the departure screen at an airport, flickering over with strange place names like other people's passwords, each representing one more thing you'll never get to see before you die, and all because, as the arrow on the map helpfully points out, you are here. Wow. This is what German people do. Yeah, but it's in English, so we can all enjoy it. Excellent. <laughs> Don't have to learn how to spell new things. <laughs> uh, Dictionary of Obscuresorrows.com. And I think the book comes out sometime next year. Awesome. Mike, what's yours? Uh, okay, Alex, I brought this one out especially for you uh, because it's transportation themed. It's a podcast. It's called The War on Cars. Uh, it's uh, hosted by people who are like bicycle advocates and, and transit advocates. And it's basically about how cars fit into our culture. And it's not always rosy, uh, but I can highly recommend it. Particularly, there's a recent episode, I think about two weeks ago, where they interview a historian named Sarah Sayo. She's written a book about how our country's reliance on private car ownership has eroded the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution by opening up all citizens, both law-abiding and law-breaking, to discretionary policing. Uh, really, really fascinating discussion. Um, and, you know... The book is uh, rather academic, but the conversation is much more lively. So I would recommend diving into the conversation. First. I listened to that. It was really good. Yeah, it was really amazing. Uh, and, you know, it tells you a lot about how police, uh, basically how police unions operate in, in the country and uh, all the court cases that were central to, uh, you know, cars becoming things that cops could search anytime they wanted to, even though like they need a warrant for your home, but they don't need one for your car. Really, really amazing. Really fascinating. So um, the whole this year, this entire year, they've just been killing it on that podcast. The War on Cars. Can I throw in a bonus recommendation? Yes. I wrote a book. Hey! I wrote a book about the history of the race to create the self-driving car. It's coming out from Simon & Schuster in June. It's called Driven, and you can pre-order it now from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any other forward-thinking book marketplace. Yes, or just Venmo Alex. $40 and he'll send you a signed copy. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Definitely Venmo me. <laughs> we'll, we'll work out the details. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Alex, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. You can find all of us on Twitter. Uh, just check out the show notes for our handles. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth and our consulting executive producer is Alex Kaplman. Bye everybody. <laughs> <laughs>